Well, this morning we get to step into Isaiah 65 and 66, which, if you paid attention, you know that's the end of the book, because there are no more chapters after that. So this will be our 30th visit to the book of Isaiah. We started last September toward the end, and interrupted by holidays and some things, 30 sermons later, here we are. Next Sunday, we will begin a 10-week look into the Psalms. We did this five years ago. We're doing it again, different Psalms. And our goal is that we would, together as a church family, visit all the different types of Psalms. Some are exuberant and praise-filled. Some are, are lament and sadness and grief. And they speak of all of our human emotions. This sermon series coming up, those 10 weeks, will be coordinated with the folks over at Central. So whoever's preaching there and whoever's preaching here will be on the same text uh, each Sunday for those 10 weeks as the pattern of what we'll do from here on out. That's our intent, is to have the same thing going on in both pulpits. So we're grateful for all of that. Now, Book of Isaiah has seen a whole lot of things come across our path. We have heard uh, scathing judgment, God judging the nations that rebelled against him. We've heard prophecies of a coming savior, a Messiah, the seed of David. We've, we've seen that in a number of places. And today, under the heading, Future Grace and Final Judgment, we are going to see all those big themes of Isaiah come to a conclusion. All right? So future grace, indeed, plenty of it. And final judgment, very, very sobering. So for all who would say, yeah, I don't know if I really believe all that, friend, let me tell you, if you're skeptical about a day of coming judgment, um, please don't wait. Because even if you don't believe it, there will be a day you will. And I pray on that day you will know Christ is your Savior. Because otherwise, that awareness of judgment really being a thing would be a, a sobering day indeed. So even for those who say, I don't believe it, I understand. But you will. You will one day. So today we have a lot of things to look at in these two chapters. I'm excited about where we get to go. But I'd like to pray for us. And we'll get going here, all right? So join me, please, as we pray. Our Father, how good it is to open the Word of God together as a church family. This most important of things that we do week after week after week, to open the Word of God and to place ourselves under your authority as our God and our King and our Savior, and, and to know that here in this book you speak, you tell us exactly what it is we need to know with such clarity that it's amazing. Father, I pray that you would help each of us here you, who knows the hearts of each person in this room, that you would, would speak directly to us through your word and by your spirit exactly what each of us needs to hear, whether it's a word of encouragement or a word of conviction or rebuke, whatever that is, our Father, use your word by your spirit today in a way that only you can do. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So if you found the sermon notes in your bulletin, uh, that would be a good thing. That will be a help to you. There are a couple items of review. You know, if, as I mentioned here, that we've used that theme, hope in the God who saves for all 30 of our sermons. There's been different sermon art come your way. For the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, we used the picture of the fire, you remember. And that was based on Isaiah 6 and the altar there that uh, was used as a cleansing place for Isaiah's lips. The seraphim, the burning ones in his presence yeah, Isaiah 6. So we used that as an image. And then in Isaiah 40, as we switch to the tone, a different tone of comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Then we move to a different, a different picture. But both under the heading, hope in the God who saves. So I hope that that theme has captured you in some way along, the, along our journey here. Today, 
Isaiah 65 and, and chapter 66. You see my comments about today's text, more on some of that in a bit. But I have three headings here. And before I read, I'd like you to just notice with me the way I've spelled out the chapter breakdown for 65. I said 1 through 7, 8 to 10, and 11 to 16. Before I read that chapter, I'm going to read all of it. I want you to be prepared for the shifts that take place because they they, they say something a little different at, at that place. So the first seven verses speak of judgment. They really do. They're sobering. It's God saying, I'm coming for you, and I can see what I'm, what's going on in your life. So it's that. And then there are three verses, 8, 9, 10, where there's, there's God seeing those whose hearts belong to him. He can see. He knows what's going on in everybody's heart. And then in the last section, 11 through 16, that first half of the chapter, 11 through 16, there's, there's kind of a contrast we're going to see where God says, the, my people the righteous ones, this, and then there's the rest of y'all who are going to be in deep trouble. So he kind of goes back and forth. So watch for those along the way. But I'm going to read all of chapter 65, and then we'll talk about it together. But hear those different shifts as God speaks about this issue of judging the rebellious and delivering his remnant. We'll talk about that. Isaiah 65, God's word. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs, who spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, and the broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay, I will indeed repay into their lap, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Now, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it, there's blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountain. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon, now that's not a person, this is a place that's on the west side. It's not you, Miss Sharon, so sorry. <clears throat> Sharon shall, shall be a pastor for the flocks on the west. The Valley of Achor, another location geographically on the east, so you could say from west to east. The Valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Now, we're going to go back to the back and forth here, both. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, those are names of gods, okay? They're just transliterated here for us. But names of gods, false gods. I will destine you to the sword, God says, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. And you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Watch for that phrase. Shows up again in chapter 66. You chose what I did not delight in. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen people for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants, he will call by another name. Renaming in the Bible often was a sign of blessing. Not always, but often. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Wow, okay, we'll stop at that point. So, so the, the, the big issue here in these 16 verses is God's ability to judge his right to judge the rebellious wherever they are found, and to deliver those whose hearts belong to him. He calls them the remnant. Now, I want to I say several things under this heading. You see four bullet points here. First of all, the awareness that a major biblical theme is illustrated here, and that is the ability of God to see the hearts of every person. That was true back then, and please note, it's true today. As we sit right here, God sees every person's heart, He sees where we stand with him. He knows whether we trust him as our savior, whether we don't. And if we're trying to pull the wool over anybody else's eyes, it just doesn't work for God. He always sees, always. And I'm just reminding you of this. There's a a colorful story told in 1 Samuel 16. This is where God sent Samuel to go pick, to anoint the next king of Israel after Saul. Saul was the king for about 40 years. And Saul was uh, excluded from God's favor. Yeah, buddy, I know, I know, I know. Sorry, Robin. It's a tough morning. The Lord sees. He'll bring justice. I promise. There's a word for you. (laughs) So Samuel is looking at, he goes to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint the next king. And being a good uh, prophet guy, uh, Jesse, the dad, brings in the oldest. His name was Eliab. Eliab, and he, was, he looked like the next Marine. Apparently, he was a great-looking guy because as soon as he came in, Samuel looked at him and said, Behold, the Lord's anointed us before him. Like, look at this guy, clearly king material. And God said, No, God hasn't chosen him. And that's when this conversation happens. When God says to Samuel, You know, my paraphrase, you think that's him based on how he looks. He looks like a king. Wrong. He says, The Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Eliab is sent off, and then the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy, until all the big brothers of David are gone, and the room is empty, and Samuel looks around and says, is that it? Don't you have any more kids? Jesse says, well, there's this one other kid, probably, you know, a scrawny kid. He's, I mean, he's, he's just a kid. He's out there taking care of the sheep. Samuel says, we will not sit down to eat until he comes. They bring in David from the sheep, and he's probably dusting himself off a little bit. What am I doing? And God says to Samuel, that's the one. Wow. It's a reminder to us that though we may fool people by outward appearance, we never fool God because he always, always, always looks at the heart. So he, he knows. He knows. Now, in this, in this context, there are people who are kind of blowing smoke. 
in terms of religion. They really are, because that's what's going on. If you look at uh, verses 3, 4, and 5, as we read them a moment ago, that's the part about sacrificing in gardens, making offerings. You say, what's wrong with doing those things? That doesn't sound too bad. Eating pig's flesh, that sounds like a bacon meal. What's the problem here? Well, those were things that good Jewish folks shouldn't have been doing and weren't part of the worship described in the Old Testament. So those were on the bad list. And they were doing the bad list, and then look at verse 5, and still saying to other people, stay back, stay back. I'm too holy for you to come close. Can you imagine? Wow, I'm too holy for you. But at the very same time, they've got all this stuff that God sees. That's the point of this. They're walking around strutting tall saying, I'm pretty, I'm pretty religious here. Got the whole Bible memorized. Go to church every Sunday. Know all the songs. Huh? Like, I mean, seriously. And God says, oh, Really? Really? because you don't fool me one bit. I see every other thing you're doing every other night of the week. You think me, I think I don't notice, but I do. So you can cut all the don't come near me, I'm holy stuff, God says, because you're headed for judgment. Isn't that interesting? God sees. So nobody on the final day, when we stand before the Lord, nobody will be able to say, yeah, but look at all the cool stuff I did and have God say, oh yeah, that was pretty good. Come on into heaven. No, anybody who gets to heaven on that great and final day will not be there because they were so good. You understand this, right? I sure hope so. Because there are people, I think, who still in a, in a country where you try to be nice, and being nice is wonderful. Please keep it up. But being nice is not how you earn favor with God to get into his heaven. In fact, you can't be nice enough. Couldn't be. You can't be perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. The only way any of us gets into God's heaven is because of the work of Jesus on the cross who died in our place. That's the, that's the only way our sins can be forgiven. It's not you, brother. It's not me. It's Christ and Christ alone who paid for our sin, rose from the dead. That's it. That's it. So all of these people doing all this cool stuff and then saying, I'm too holy, God sees through it all and says, you are playing games, playing games, and I will judge you for that. There'll be a day we'll all know. Wow. So God's ability to judge. Now, verses 8 to 10, we have this business of the remnant. And I'm moving to my third bullet point here. Uh, As promised by God, there's always a smaller group of true Jewish believers. As a student of the Bible, if you've read the Old Testament, you are aware that often God speaks about a small group who is still faithful, even though there's a large crowd that isn't. And God can always tell the difference. See? between now, Now, the word remnant it may or may not be familiar to you. Sometimes it's used in the Bible. It just means a smaller group uh, out of the whole. My sisters were, uh, you know, when I grew up, five sisters. Sometimes they did, uh, you know, sewing and things like that. I got to cut the grass and split the firewood. Good division of labor. I would just as soon be outside any, any day. They never taught me to sew. I can attach buttons, though. So anyway, that's good. I can do that part. But all the rest of it, my sisters would sometimes go to wherever they went to get this stuff, fabric store, and sometimes they'd buy a remnant. That means a smaller piece of the whole that was big enough to do what they needed. So it's the same idea here. Out of a whole nation, you'd think, privileged people, you'd think there'd be more, but there was a small group, a godly remnant who were still faithful to the Lord. Those are the ones addressed in verses 8, 9, and 10, where God says, I see, I do see. Uh, They are the ones, my chosen, he refers to them as here, my servants. There's still some, there's still some. I will not destroy them all, verse 8. No, not all are headed to judgment. Out of that big group, there are some whose hearts are faithful to the Lord, and they're called 
a remnant, a godly remnant. And of course, others from the nations will join them. Now, when I read verses one and two, if you know your New Testament, those should have sounded familiar because Paul uses them, quotes them uh, in Romans chapter 10. So verses one and two, um, Paul is using them later on to speak of God bringing the nations, the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish peoples to himself and the, the sadness with which God looks at the nation of Israel and says, your hearts are far from me. So he says again, verses one and two, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. And Paul applies that to the Gentile nations, the nations of the, of the world. Interesting. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good. Paul applies that as here to the Jewish nation. And God says, hey, folks, you're called by my name. You're my chosen people. How come your hearts are not turned toward me? And then God, in amazing ways in the New Testament, opens the door in a whole fresh way to the nations to come that look very different from one another and from folks inside the house. And God says to the nations, come. Amazing. And Paul says, look at the work of God in this business called the Great Commission as he calls the nations and they come, they come. Very interesting. Okay, so the first half of this chapter then is under that heading, God will judge the rebellious and deliver his remnant. There's more on some of those themes in a bit. I want to move to, to chapter 65, 17 to 25. Okay, so there's a big shift that happens between 16 and 17. Like, almost like the, you know, a whole new book has come off of the shelf. But now we're talking about something else. And I want to give you a little heads up uh, beforehand. This text is much discussed in the debate about future things, or if you want the cool theological word, eschatology, okay? This, this section I'm about to read is a big discussion here between those who see it as largely figurative and those who see it as more literal than not. And I want to just identify those two groups. We're going to talk about this for a minute. Remember last week I mentioned some of us in our Bible studies who like to just get the, get the basics down, want to know for sure how to get to heaven, and then leave all the details alone. Really not into that. Remember this? And I call that group A and group B who said, I need more details. I want to, you know, all the cross-references. Okay, this is going to be some of it more for class B. Okay, the rest of you are going to be fine sitting in. But here we go. So future things, eschatology is the cool name, and that would fall into all the ologies that you learn starting in junior high. Biology, geology, sociology, psychology, each of which is the study of, the ology part, is the study of something. So in the Bible, as you study theology, there are a whole lot of ologies as well. So you have bibliology, the study of the Bible, pneumatology, pneuma, spirit, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, soteriology, doctrine of how to be saved, soteria is the Greek word that's part of that. So here, eschatology, eschatos, future, future things, the end things. So sometimes people say, where are you at on the eschatological issues? Now you'll know. Oh, it's future things. Well, as a matter of fact, and off you go. Okay? So that's a kind of a crash course in that. You'll hear a lot of other ologies around if you, if you read other books on the Bible. But here, eschatology. Now here's the question. Is this more figurative? And there are good scholars, people who love Jesus, and they're going to go to heaven, who see it as more figurative. And there are others of us who see it as more literal, actually talking about some substantive things, not just a figure of speech. So those are kind of the two 
very big categories I'll, I'll, I'll use. I'll paint those with big brushes, okay? So I'm going to read this, and then I want to welcome you to the discussion, and you get to think with me about this, okay? We'll still be friends at the end, whether you agree with me ultimately in these areas or not. Uh, but, but here we go. I want to read verses 17 to 25 then. God's word is in looking ahead. So God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed or thought to be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That tagline, of course, is how you know indeed it will be true. God said it. The end. Wow, so what is this about? Now, before we talk about this in particular and lean ourselves toward a view or away from it, I want to read those two other texts that I referenced in the paragraph called today's text, okay? I want to go back to chapter 11 and pick up a couple verses here, some of which are line by line exactly what we just read. They're that close. And then we'll go to chapter 25 for a minute. I want you to hear that this is not the first time Isaiah has said such things, So we read in Isaiah 11, interestingly, a chapter that begins, verses 1 through 5, with a introduction of Jesus, Messiah, who's coming. And then between verses 5 and 6, it's like the whole church age disappears there. He goes straight from the coming of Jesus to this future time, however we describe it. It was kind of interesting. But I'm going to read then 11, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then you notice verse 10 begins, in that day. And again, verse 11, in that day. And you've heard me, if you've been around, you know that I've I've commented several times on the that days. As you read the Old Testament, the prophets and so on, right into the New Testament, that day, uh, sometimes in the New Testament, it's capitalized because it's looking ahead to a specific day, not necessarily a 24-hour period, but a season where in the future, God will deal again with the nation of Israel and future things. 
Now, sometimes that day, or sometimes you'd call it the day of the Lord, uh, is, is spoken of. It's a phrase used for immediate judgment at a few times in the Old Testament. But most of the time, that day is, is, is like a code, code word, that day, the day of the Lord. It's looking to the future, things that we haven't seen yet. The day of the Lord, uh, we, we read in the New Testament, will come like a thief in the night, right? That's Peter, I think. So the day, the day, the great day, the day of the Lord. And Paul, in, in, he'll keep that. He'll keep me until that day. Indeed, he will. Isaiah 25 then. And we want to pick up a couple of verses here, verses 6 through 9, likewise, as in chapter 11. And we'll go back to 65 and say a couple things here. But in Isaiah 25, you can see again, Isaiah's talking about these things, these future things, things that we have not seen yet. So he says in verse 6, on this mountain, often referring to Jerusalem, when we talk about the mountain of the house of the Lord, things like that. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. All of that is, is like a description of the most amazing food you've ever had. That's the intent, okay? He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. Uh, Some of your Bibles say the pall, P-A-L-L, like a negative thing, a a heavy blanket, a wet blanket. The veil that is spread over all the nations. What is that? The next line. He will swallow up death forever. And all of us would say, oh, I want to be there. Which of us who has lived very long has not felt the sting of death? Which of us would not long for a day when death is swallowed up forever. This sounds good to me. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then, of course, chapter 26 begins, in that day, Isaiah says it over and over again. So here he's looking ahead to a day when death is swallowed up and God wipes away tears from our faces. Wow. So Isaiah, I'm saying, often has spoken of future things, eschatology. So here then, in this section, we find some very specific things. If you look at my notes, second bullet point and several things there. So verse 17 says, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. So that's, that's something the New Testament talks about as well. You'll remember in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter describes, he, he says, we wait for, we look for a, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, the home of righteousness, depending on the translation you have. Uh, we look for, we're looking forward to this. And then you get to Revelation 21, and John, in that book we describe as Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 21, he says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first, first earth were, were, were done away. A new heaven and a new earth. So this is New Testament language as well. It's not just stuck in Isaiah. So what else is being talked of here? So, so a, a new heavens and a new earth, okay? Now, Jerusalem is spoken of again. 
verse 18. We see it in 18. We see it in 19. We've seen it throughout the book of Isaiah in speaking of future things. Jerusalem, we're going to see it again in chapter uh, uh, 66. Rejoice with Jerusalem. You'll be comforted in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is spoken of. Jerusalem's a city. It's an actual geographical place. Is it the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God or a renewed Jerusalem? Is it one of those? Let me think. Now, this chapter, as I read it, speaks of birth and death and <laughs> actual animals. It speaks about animals. Animals, or will there be animals in heaven? Well, my goodness sakes, is this heaven? Is that, is that what this is talking about? Some of you, I realize, are hoping all your animals are in heaven. You'll be reunited with Fluffy again. Hold on. Before you go there, before you go there, I'd like to hope that that isn't exactly the way it is. Uh, others of us may not have been real fond of Fluffy. And if there are mosquitoes in heaven, this is a really big problem, okay? So I, I'm not ready to go down the, the path toward all of those. Uh, all the animals will be in heaven. I, yeah, I, I, I don't see that. So I start looking here and saying, a wolf and a lamb and a lion. And is this heaven? Or is, this, or is it a figure of speech? Or is, it, or is it talking about something else before heaven where there are actual animals? Because I want to know. Um, man, animals in heaven would change a lot of things. I realize that nowadays it's kind of, it's terrible theology, but it's common. Where people say, when they're des- describing a, a lost loved one or something, and somebody will talk about heaven and they'll say, well, if it'll make you happy, it'll be there. I've heard this said by people who ought to know better. Um, so, so please don't ever say that, at least in my hearing. That's terrible theology. That's, that's like you need a Wizard of Oz. That's what you really want. You, it isn't that you want the God of the Bible. You want the Wizard of Oz. You want Matt. No, hold on. That's not it. No, heaven isn't just a place of your creation. No, it's a place God has prepared for those who love him. And on that day, when you get there, you won't be looking around saying, I need the world's biggest hot fudge Sunday. No, your desires will be straightened up a little bit. And on that day... When you get there by the grace of Jesus, your, your desires will be for him, the one who sits on the throne forever and ever, and you won't be chasing around over trivial things, okay? I put hot fudge Sundays in trivia, so you know that I really meant that. Well, so I look at the discussion of animals and birth and death, and I find myself saying, I think this is talking about something other than the eternal state. Now, there are, as I mentioned, people who say more figurative and not really a, an earthly kingdom. And there are those who say, yeah, more literal and more of an earthly kingdom. So if I haven't said it clearly enough, I'm in that group. I see a day when there's like a, a, a kingdom age, a millennial kingdom, something like that here on earth. And again, there are those who say, yeah, but it's poetic language. I got it. I hear it. And book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature, a lot of figurative. Of course there is. So which of the things you take literally, which of the things you don't? Even in apocalyptic literature, you don't just throw it all away and say, well, it's just apocalyptic. Uh, So anyway, these are things that are discussed. Now, I brought a couple friends with me who agree with me. You'd be surprised if I did otherwise, but you know, there's a lot of good books written equally this beefy by people who take a different view, but it's appropriate because I'm the one speaking to you to just mention a couple that go down the path that I do, okay, that see a more literal kingdom uh, here on earth, Christ reigning out of Jerusalem, amen, I think so. So one of those would be this guy, his name is Michael Vlock. Uh, used to be a professor at Master's Seminary in California. Very recently, about a year ago, moved to be a theology professor at uh, the Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. 
Uh, he's written this book called He Will Reign Forever. It's a biblical theology of the kingdom. And so he, he takes the issue of kingdom. What is the kingdom? When you read it in the Bible, when Jesus speaks about the kingdom, what did he mean? And he deals with every instance of the kingdom from Genesis to Revelation. No, really, he does. So he just starts right off all the way through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, starts in Genesis, all the way to the book of Revelation. And he says, I pause on pages 176 and 177. Okay, here's how he deals with this. And he's going to reference somebody who holds a different view that sees this as more figurative. And of course, as a good theology person, he will, he will speak with respect toward those who see the other view. And I, I think that's only appropriate. So Vlock says this, uh, Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, predicts an era with childbirth and rare cases of death, which we read. Some believe these descriptions should not be taken literally. Allegedly, Isaiah was describing conditions his original readers would not be able to grasp. So when the conditions of Isaiah 65 are fulfilled, there will be no childbirth or death. Then he quotes one of these guys who says it the other way. He gives actual credit to him and he says he, he says it this way. And then his commentary on it, he says, there are problems with this view, as you would expect him to say if he takes the other. Yeah, he says, in addition to denying what the text appears to be saying, this perspective underestimates what Isaiah's audience was capable of grasping. If Isaiah had declared there's no childbirth or death in all the coming uh, new earth, would his, would his audience not be able to understand this? Would stating this confuse them or be so far beyond their thinking? Probably not. We need to give the original audience more credit concerning what they could not understand. And then he skips on down. When Isaiah predicts a future day when there's childbirth in the kingdom and examples of premature death, he most probably means what he says. His audience would grasp this. This seems to be a simpler and better way to understand Isaiah's words. So he puts himself in the more literal category rather than the less literal category. That's Michael Vlock. Interesting. And then there's this other guy. Uh, his name is John Oswalt or Oswalt, O-S-W-A-L-T. Might be a V if he's German, and I don't know that. But uh, he's, a, he's one of the leading authorities in the book of Isaiah. So this is one of his thinner volumes. And I would just like to let you know that on page, I'll find it because I read it. Uh-huh. Finished two weeks ago, baby. That's, man, I tell you what. Yeah, yeah, on page 689. Yeah, huh? So, Oswald, in commenting on this text, today's text, he says a couple of things here. He says, uh, let's see, the deeper issue is one of biblical interpretation. How literally is one to take poetic imagery? Indeed, that's what I said. People whose general orthodoxy no one can doubt differ significantly on this topic. Yes, correct. A lot of good people who love Jesus see it different. Now, he says, all Orthodox people agree that Christ will return in physical form. What they disagree on is whether there will be a physical reign of Christ on earth prior to final judgment and prior to the revealing of the new heaven and new earth. Correct. Now, he says this, if the language of Revelation 19 to 20 is given any literal credence at all, this seems to be the case, and it is where I stand personally. So that's a, a summary of his larger discussion of this, saying uh, if you take anything about Revelation 19 to 21 literally, like heaven and God wiping away tears from their eyes, there seems to be something that was meant there literally, and maybe we should read Isaiah 65 the same way and take it at least somewhat literally, an actual kingdom. 
So anyway, I, that's, that's where I stand on that. I think there is a coming kingdom uh, here on earth, and then ultimately the final state. So some of you are familiar with those topics and uh, have wrestled with them. Others of you are saying, I am not sure about this at all. Just love Jesus and go along with us and keep studying. All right, I'll leave it at that. But anyway, I I wanted you to know there are other resources available if you'd like to study. But God will create a new heavens and a new earth. And the last three words of chapter 25 tell you how we know it's true. Says the Lord. I'll do it. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Thus says the Lord. I want to go to chapter 66. Uh, Fairly briefly, really. This is the the final summation of Isaiah's uh, book. Okay, 65 chapters behind us. And in these 24 verses, there are three elements as well. Verses 1 through 6 take one more, kind of one more swipe toward judgment, uh, a little more to come. Verses 7 through 14, you find Jerusalem personified as a woman who gives birth and finds great joy. We'll talk about that. And then verses 15 to 24, the landing part, where he brings it all to a conclusion. There's judgment, yes, mingled with glory, mingled with evangelism that bears fruit, and the nations are coming. My goodness sakes, the glory of the Lord revealed the nations, the glory of the nations, and the, the reality of final judgment shows up again in the last verse. So I just want to read a couple of these verses anyway. I want to start with one through six. We'll read all those and a couple of the others to follow. Uh, But I have it under the heading, God will comfort Jerusalem and the nations. So verses 1 through 6, we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house? What is the house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? In other words, I made the whole universe, and I live there. You're going to build a house? How big? Just checking. That's what that's all about. All these things, everything that's been, all these things, my hand is made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I look, mark it well, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That's really good. Who trembles at my word. Same phrase down in verse 5. Now, this is an intriguing section. Stay with me here. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. Those are all reprehensible things. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. They have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose, choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Same phrase from 65.12. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified so that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, a sound from the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. This is a sobering section. And it speaks of the judgment that God will bring on those who refuse to acknowledge him, who refuse to trust Christ as their savior. Okay? Now, I want to comment on verses three and four in just a moment here, but please hear me on this. Um, Not only do we sometimes have people say, 
But I just don't believe that. And like I said at the beginning, yes, but one day you will. One day you will. Um, this business of judgment is, is intended to be sobering. Sometimes we talk about the call of the gospel, and we use the term invitation. You've heard me say this before. You will again. We hear about invitations. I, I understand the term. But the call of the gospel is both an invitation and a command from heaven. It is both. Invitations come to us for dinner parties. Come on over. And you can say, ah, maybe not. That night's not good for me. It's an invitation. And yes, there's an invitation. But repent is not an invitation. That is a command from heaven. And well, like here on planet Earth, you can decline an invitation politely and say, yeah, I don't think that works for me. But to ignore a command from heaven, a summons? Really? No, when the Bible says repent, that is a command from the throne of God. So anyone who says no has rejected a command from heaven. So it's kind of serious, you understand. That's why it's taken seriously and why the Bible speaks of judgment. It isn't because they declined a polite invitation to, to tea. It's because God, the God of heaven who made them said, repent. And they said, no. You, you see what I'm getting at here? So a section on judgment should not be something we look at and say, well, boy, God just, maybe he doesn't really mean that either. No, actually he does where he calls the nations to repent and says, the ones, those who do not, those who reject me, those who refuse the command from heaven, man, they're enemies of the throne of God. As Paul grieves about this in the book of Romans, remember when he talks about his own people, his own, the Jewish people? He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. They glory in their shame. That's Philippians 3. They set their minds on earthly things. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. They glory in things they should be ashamed of. Paul grieved about this. He took it seriously, as should we. So God's glory, very evident. Uh, A reminder that God sees the difference between those who tremble at his word and those who do not. And boy, put to shame. Now, verses 7 through 14, next section here. Jerusalem is personified as a mother, but this is pretty amazing stuff. And ladies, you can be jealous of this if you think about it in the, in the literal sense, but it's personification, which is a figure of speech, because it's Jerusalem in labor, and she gives birth before she even gets into labor. Isn't that amazing? And so there's no pain involved. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Can you imagine that? Didn't hurt at all. This is great. And so this is an amazing moment of joy. So it's, it's describing in verse 7 and on, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Indeed. Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? As soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice! Rejoice with her. So Jerusalem is, is lifted up here. And again, the last line in verse 13, she shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So there's, there's joy in this day for Jerusalem. And I ask again, is it speaking of a specific location, like a city, or is that simply personification uh, of another sort? So I take it as at least somewhat literal, meaning an actual city of Jerusalem in that day uh, lifted up in prominence. 
And then the final section, verse 15 and so on, moves toward judgment and glory again. So here, as I read this, for behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves, that is, they're trying to make themselves holy, they go into the gardens following one in the midst, uh, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice. In other words, don't eat those guys. That's not Jewish code. They shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. Hear the repetition of nations, uh, coastlands, people afar off, in other words. I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away. It's like code for the distant nations that that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, they shall declare my glory among the nations. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters and mules and dromedaries, camels, of course, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also, that is people from the nations, I will also take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And for as for the for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. They shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Wow, and there he closes. So it... It, verse, verse 24 is very much a sobering note to close. Um, that phrase, the worm shall not die, etc., you recognize perhaps from reading the Gospels. Uh, Jesus used that phrase to speak of eternal judgment. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem, uh, outside the city, there was a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. The valley, uh, Gehenna is in that same uh, word uh, family. And it was the place, it was like a trash heap. It's a place where fire, or there was burning. And I don't know if you've ever been around a place where people burn trash. I have. Um, not every place in the world has um, garbage service. So a lot of places, people just throw all their trash out and light it on fire. And if you're downwind, it, it really smells bad. Um, I've been in a number of places where, where that's going on. It's not a wood fire. You don't cook over this. But it's, it's, it's just burning up all this stuff. And, and that's the imagery here of, of fire and, and things cast out. Not a good day. That's the way Jesus used it, and that's the way it's used here for those who've rebelled against the Lord. Now, the former paragraph, though, just, just kind of glance. Nations, verse 18. Nations, verse 19. The coastlands, similarly, verse 19. All the nations, verse 20, and so on down. The nations, all flesh, verse 23. There's an emphasis here on the nations that fulfills, you ready? Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant the work of God through the seed of Abraham to the blessing to all the earth and the Psalms that speak about all the nations coming and then the great commission that says go into all the world, preach the gospel to all the nations, make disciples of all the nations. The nations, the nations are in view all the way through the Bible here as well 
I'm going to go to, to the book of Revelation. Here's where we're going to close, if you'd go with me, I, uh, to Revelation 21, and we'll wrap up here. I just want you to see the continuity. Isaiah informs the whole New Testament. So if you come to, uh, to Revelation 21, you, you just cannot read the New Testament and not hear strains of Isaiah poking through. So here, as the Bible closes... Uh, John, of course, the beloved disciple. This is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, this book. So verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations, you see this? By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. You see this? The nations represented in the presence of God in all their glory, not made monolithic, oh yes, united in worship of the Lamb, but unique in the beauty that they bring. For nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those whose who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will, will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow. Now, Isaiah just shouts through these, through these words. The nations, Isaiah would say in chapter 66, I told you the nations were coming. Uh, please hear this. In today's day, when people try to find unity between various ethnicities. Can I tell you something? Understanding the God of the Bible and the work of the gospel is the most unifying thing there is. Because all of us who read the Bible and believe it know that, that someday people from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation will be there saved by the same blood of Jesus. Our brothers and sisters then, our brothers and sisters now, in the cross of Jesus, those barriers are broken down in a way that no, no legislation on this side of heaven can ever produce. You will, not find, you will not find unity from people who yell at each other. You'll find unity only in the cross of Jesus when we recognize that with those of us who know him, we're one before him. There is unity like no other, uh, far more than any law could produce. I want to tell you one little story, and then I'll, I'll land this. Uh, some years ago now, uh, seven, eight, I forget, uh, I was privileged to be in India with some of our global partners, Paul and Annie Pillay, both of them now with the Lord, their son, AJ, running an amazing ministry over there with his brothers, uh, Sujay, and a couple of others, um, AJ, VJ, yes, Jessica, uh, get the kids' names right. But over there in India, they have, a, they have a Bible college and a seminary, and I was able to be there with a couple of others for a Bible conference and a graduation event. Uh, about 250 were graduating for Bible college and seminary, headed off to the fields of, of the nations around. And there was a couple thousand people who'd come together for this conference, 61 language groups. Imagine, 
from all around, India, the Himalayas, um, you just name a surrounding area. There was somebody there from that group and they were all dressed in their, their, in their national garb. So the yellows and the oranges and the reds, the beauty, if you've ever seen pictures of India, it was there. And they were united in Christ. Uh, some cases, some of these groups would have fought each other uh, back in the years gone by. There would have been bloodshed, but oh no, not today. United in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, all looking the same? Oh no, not at all. The glory of the nations was there. So at this, this conference I was a part of, before there was any preaching, there was like a full hour of, of music and presentations from those groups. So, so you come at seven o'clock and from about seven to eight, uh, you get to sit and watch all these groups come in in their national language. They would sing and dance songs of praise to God that at the very same time, I understood none of it and I understood all of it. You know what I mean by that? I bet you do. Some of the, the, some, in some cases, their musical ability was better than others, but all of it was lacked self-consciousness because it was the best they had to the glory and praise of God, and all of it was beautiful. And, and I, I realize in every, in every nation, there are things that are shameful and should be put, about, put aside. There's not a nation out there that can claim more righteousness than another that way. There are things in every culture to be set aside. But I believe also in every culture around the world, whatever skin color, language, whatever tribe and nation, that there's glory because those individuals are people made in the image of God. The Imago Dei rests on every human being. And so image of God can bring beauty and glory. And so it was. I'd sit there for meeting after meeting up on the stage because I got to speak periodically. And you get to watch group after group saying and danced and saying and danced and saying yellows and oranges and reds. It was glorious. Taste of heaven. Then you get to get up and speak of Jesus. As people around the room translated into Hindi, I think was the main language to be translated into, you, you, you speak and you wait and you speak and you wait. And, and people around the room uh, responding to the word of God and loving the same Jesus. So I'm saying this, Isaiah foresaw that day. And whether you look ahead at all these things we've looked at and say that's the eternal state, fine. I'm with you uh, and we're going to go to heaven together. But I think there's a millennial kingdom beforehand. And even if you don't, someday in the millennial kingdom, you'll come to me and, well, you know. (laughs) Say, yeah, okay, here we are. Well, the Lord knows. The Lord knows. That's my view, but I I wouldn't go to blows over it. But one day we'll be with him. One day we'll be with him, and he shall reign forever. He shall reign forever. Hallelujah. Handel's chorus, he shall reign forever and ever. Would you stand with me? I hope you know Christ is your Savior. I hope you're ready for that great day. Christ, Christ is the key that prepares you for it. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the the beauty of the book of Isaiah, for all that has been ours over these past 30 sermons. Uh, We have heard the words of judgment and been sobered by them. We've heard promises of Messiah Jesus and found great glory there because we have read the rest of the book and we know Jesus came. He did. We hear today even Isaiah speak of things yet future to us, the eternal day, a kingdom to come. And we say, oh Lord, bring it, bring it, bring that day. 
We look forward to it. Thank you in the meantime that you've put us here for such a time as this to be salt and light. So help us to do it is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.